And growing up, uh, for me, maybe some of you can identify with this, as, as I grew up and even still to this day, I really enjoy uh, illusionists. People who, you know, have, you've seen them on TV, now they're kind of getting really creepy, but when I, you know, when I was growing up, they weren't so creepy, right? And David Copperfield is kind of a normal guy looking, and anyway, so they, they just, I was always intrigued, like this week even, we go, we, I went with my family, and we went and ate lunch at uh, this local establishment, and this, this older gentleman comes up, and I'm sitting with one of my daughters, and he's like, hey, give me five, give me five, and she kind of looks at me like, is this okay? Like, what? And, and he, he's like, just give me five, and so she gives him a five, and he's like, no, harder, so she gives him five, he's like, no, you've got to really give me a five, so she gives him a five, and he turns his hand around, and there's this quarter, like, popped out of his hand, and She's like, wow, you know, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I, I, want, I, I really wanted to come up here today with some illusion. Like, I really, but I didn't, I didn't. And so <laughs> I, I wish I would have because it had been really awesome. But I can remember watching these guys, and sometimes you would see them, right, and they would have this, like, big trough of water, right, and they're like, I'm going now, I'm going to get in the, the water and they're going to lock the, you know, the, the lid down and I'm going to try to hold my breath for 14 hours or you know, whatever, I'm going to try to however long till I can escape and they were going to put you know, like a, a covering on it so you couldn't see what was going on in there and, and then the, he would say, but before I do that, I'm going to put shackles on my wrist, right? And so he'd get someone from the audience to check the, you know, the handcuffs or whatever. And then he's going to bind his feet. And I can remember, even as a young kid, thinking, what are you doing? Like, that seems really foolish. I mean, it seems bad enough that you're going to get in a trough of water. That really seems pretty difficult. But now you're going to put on chains. You're going to put on shackles. That seems like that would make it really difficult to get out of the water trough. I mean, that was the point, right? But even for me as a young guy, I'm just thinking, that's just really silly. Why would you want to hinder yourself? Why, why would you want to make it even more difficult to try to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? I think Paul is going to give us a perspective this morning, a spiritual perspective that would help us see the difficulties in life, the things that we face are actually really just spiritual illusions. And the reality for the illusionist was those chains were really no hindrance at all. They seemed like maybe they were a hindrance, but he knew exactly what he was doing. I'm hoping this morning as we look at this text that we would see the chains in our lives, the, the, the shackles, the things that would seemingly hinder us, seemingly be a hindrance for us accomplishing the mission of Jesus Christ to spread the, spread the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ, that we would just see them as a mere illusion. So join with me, Philippians Chapter 1, starting in verse 12, we're going to work through the text together, and then I'm going to kind of give us uh, some principles, some guiding principles here that will help us see what Paul is trying to articulate here in this passage, in this particular text. So starting in verse 12, Philippians chapter 1, now I know, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the people who are receiving this letter, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advancement of the gospel. Okay, let's stop right there. So what Paul wants them to understand here is that his imprisonment, they understand, they know Paul's predicament, they know that he's in prison. What has happened to me, what he's talking about is his imprisonment, and he's in these shackles, he's in these chains, he's no longer free to roam around the country and do the things that God has called him to do like he's originally done them. He can't go and plant churches, he can't... Uh, do the things freely like he had done before. And he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, these chains, 
This imprisonment has actually resulted in the advancement of the gospel. So what has happened, clearly Paul is trying to clear up some difficulty, clear up some misconceptions about what has happened to him. He wants them to know that even though he's in prison, this is actually not, not, not what you think would be the real result. I just want to clarify here. I just want to make sure that you know, the readers, that you know that, that this thing of me being in prison hasn't hindered the work of the gospel. I mean, wouldn't that be a normal assumption, right? Paul is addressing something that would probably be something they would normally assume. Here's Paul. He's, now he's, he's in jail. What's going to happen? Right? This would be a perfect opportunity, the typical opportunity for Paul in normal letters to explain to them what was happening in his situation. What he wants them to know is that what has happened has actually resulted in the advancement of the gospel. And typically what would happen in letters here is, is Paul or anyone writing a letter at this time after the greeting, you know, we've kind of worked through the greeting and a little bit of Paul sharing his heart, is that typically an author would then start talking about him, himself. Particularly here with Paul, they would expect Paul to be explaining to them how he's doing in prison. Like, oh man, it's really tough here, or man, they're beating me up, or I'm not getting enough food, or about his own well-being. But Paul just kind of skips over all that. What he wants them to see, what he wants them to understand most, is what you think was happening for my imprisonment is actually not what's happening. What's actually happening is the gospel is advancing forward. It would be easy to assume they're thinking, Paul's in prison, what are we going to do? What, I mean, Paul, this is kind of our leader guy. Now he's in prison. Oh, goodness, what are, what are we going to do? How is Paul going to share the gospel now? How is Paul going to be an apostle? How is he going to preach? How is he going to be able to do all the things that God has called him to do? And Paul wants them to know, no, the gospel is advancing. Be assured the gospel is advancing. And he's going to continue and kind of explain to them how the gospel is advancing. Verse 13, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard And to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence. Or most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment. And dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. So Paul is going on to expound on what he said. They might be a little confused. You can imagine getting this letter and reading it for the first time. And you're going through this and you say, oh wow, Paul says that this imprisonment hasn't hindered the gospel. But it's actually advanced. You'd be, I wonder what he means. How in the world could the gospel advance while Paul is in chains? How in the world could that happen? So Paul explains it to them. He says, here I am in prison. And I want you to know that even while I'm in prison, I'm sharing the gospel with everyone around me. All the guards are getting to hear about Jesus. All the other prisoners, they're getting to hear about Jesus. And apparently all these other people, we're not really sure who they are. Maybe they're city officials. Maybe they're people that are just around the prison maybe it's just people in Rome but generally speaking what Paul wants them to know is that the gospel is not being hindered just because I am in chains just because I don't have the freedom to roam and to move around doesn't mean the gospel has been hindered doesn't mean the gospel has been enchained doesn't mean the gospel has been imprisoned the gospel is going forth just like it did before just in a different way and typically Paul would come into a new city and he would go to the synagogue and he would start preaching to the Jewish people or, or Gentiles around uh, the area. And that's typically how he would do it. And what he wants them to know is like, just because this is a different situation 
doesn't mean that the gospel is not advancing. I'm taking every opportunity that God is giving me in this moment. What you see as difficulty, what you see as something that might hinder the gospel is actually something where the gospel is advancing. And I'm telling everyone about, the, about Jesus Christ. They, they know why I'm here. Why, how do they know why he's here? Because he's telling them. And he says, not only am I telling people, not only am I telling more people, and perhaps people who may not normally hear the gospel, guards and city officials and these high elite uh, uh, Roman uh, officials. He says, not only is that happening, but other people, most of the brothers, have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment, and they're daring to even speak the message of Christ even more boldly, even more fearlessly. And the people are looking at my situation and they're being more bold to share the gospel. So not only am I sharing the gospel more, but now all of these other brothers and, and sisters in Christ, they're sharing the gospel even more. They're looking at my situation and it is welling up within them. It is causing something in them to want to share the gospel even more and boldly, fearlessly. And these are opposite words from imprisonment. When you think about imprisonment, when you think about being chained up, you don't think about boldness and fearlessness and, and the advancement of something. You think about weak and, and, and not advancing and being held down or being kept from doing something that you're supposed to do. And Paul wants to know this is not what's happening. Now certainly he's going to continue on and help them see some of the motives of the heart of the people. And so he starts again in verse 15. Some, to be sure, preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So he wants to clarify here, yes, there are some people They are friends of mine, people who love Paul. They are his friends, and they are preaching Christ because they love Paul. They see Paul's example. They see that even though Paul is in prison, he is living and he is uh, giving his life for the glory of Jesus Christ. He's telling everyone around him. He's not sitting in his cell sulking, woe is me, I can't believe this is happening to me. No, he's advancing the gospel, and this is causing those around him that are watching him to be more emboldened. It's, 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 it's like when we see the stories of like Saeed, uh, the guy that's in, imprisoned in the Middle East. Right? We see his situation. We see him trying to live for the Lord, and that ought to give us more courage because we care. We don't know him personally, but we see this guy living for Christ. We go, man, that's really great, and that ought to encourage us. We see our brothers and sisters living in difficult situations around the world where it seems like it would be really hard to live for the gospel. And their situation ought to embolden us to in our situation because we don't have the same kind of constraints to live out the gospel, to share the gospel. Paul wants them to know clearly because of what he is doing with Paul's work in the prison and sharing the gospel that there are a group of people who love him, who care about him, and they are being motivated deeply to share the gospel with, without fear. And then there's this other group. Paul's rivals, who are preaching Christ, but they're doing it out of selfish ambition. They're doing it out of this rivalry between them and Paul. And we don't really understand, we don't really know from the text what exactly is going on. But what Paul wants them to know clearly is that something has happened. They, they don't, these people don't really like Paul. Maybe Paul has been too famous. Maybe they've kind of stole his stage and stole some of his 
uh, you know, his followers or, or whatever. But Paul wants them to know, hey, they're still preaching Christ. It may be out of jealousy. Maybe they're jealous because of what God is doing in me. But nonetheless, they're sharing the gospel. This is, this is a personal matter between these people. This isn't a matter of theology. This isn't a matter of they're not heretics or whatever. Paul wants you to, they're, they're proclaiming Christ. That they are proclaiming Christ. And he wants them to know this is important because of what, he ne- what he's about to say about them next. Yes, there are people who love me and they're sharing the gospel and that's, man, this is, this is what they're doing. There's this other group who are rivals. Like they don't really like me and for whatever reason. Maybe they're looking at Paul in prison and they're thinking, this is a great opportunity for me to now build my followers and for people to follow me as I lead them in Christ. Maybe they're comparing themselves to Paul Say, yeah, look at Paul, look at him. Obviously, God doesn't like him. He's in jail, and here I am. I'm out free, and I'm telling people about Jesus. God must like me more. Who knows? We don't really know what's going on, but something is happening here. And Paul just seemingly overlooks all of that. In verse 18, he says, so what? What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now, if you're reading this letter, as we are this morning, that should cause you to just be arrested. Like when you get to that point, and you see that, and you hear Paul say, who cares? Yes, there's these people out here who love me, and they're preaching the, and they're preaching the gospel. And there's this group out here who doesn't really care for me, but they're preaching the gospel, and they're preaching Jesus. What does it matter that they're against me? And really implied, what does it matter that these people love me? What matters most is that they're preaching Jesus. You ought to come to this section here and just kind of be arrested. How can Paul find himself in this situation and say... No matter what, as long as Christ is proclaimed, that's what brings me the most joy. Paul is in prison. And I've read all kinds of things and people trying to, you know, well, prison isn't exactly the same as prison is now. Or maybe he was shackled to a guard and maybe he was in a house arrest or whatever. All I know is when I think about being shackled, when I think about being imprisoned, however you want to put that, it's not really something that I think of in joyful terms. Paul's finding himself in prison. And he's certainly finding some people that are supporting him, but now he's also finding these people who don't care about him, they're slandering him, they're envious, they're jealous of him. And yet Paul finds it within himself to say, I don't really care about all of that. What I care mostly about is that Jesus Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will have so much joy. How does Paul get there? How does Paul write to these people and say, what is most important, no matter what, is that Jesus Christ be proclaimed? I think we're going to see two principles primarily that we can draw from this text that will help us see how Paul can say in the middle of difficulty that the most important thing is that Jesus Christ be proclaimed. I want us to see these principles. I want us to see these in light of our own selves, in light of our own lives. I don't think any of us here can necessarily, you know, find ourselves with Paul being imprisoned for the gospel. 
But I think certainly most of us in here can maybe sympathize or empathize and feel like there are situations in life that feel like when we're in them that they, they do not produce in us a desire for the gospel to move forward, but they actually seem like they would produce an opportunity for the gospel to be hindered. So students, maybe you live in your school and you go to school with friends and you feel like you're the only one that wants to share the gospel. You're the only one that really wants to live for Jesus and every day you think about your situation, you think how difficult that is. So God, wouldn't it just be so much easier if everybody here loved Jesus and we all just kind of did this thing together? It would be so much easier to follow you. Well, you got to get up and go to school each day and you feel a little bit like you're shackled. You look around, it's not really popular to be a Christian, maybe. Adults, we can all find ourselves in situations that seem like maybe they, as an opportunity not for the gospel to advance, but the, for the gospel to be hindered. Maybe you have a workplace that's difficult. Maybe you have family that's difficult. Maybe you have opportunities in your life. Maybe you have difficulties in your marriage, and you're thinking, I don't know how this is going to move forward for the glory of God. It seems like it's a hindrance for the gospel. Maybe you've got kids that have gone off the deep end. Whatever it is in our lives, there all, all the time there are moments in our lives, there are opportunities, there are situations where we find ourselves similar to Paul, where we say this situation doesn't seem like it would be for the glory of God, doesn't seem like it would be an opportunity to advance the gospel. How do we deal with those situations? Paul's going to help us. The first thing that he sees, the first thing that we understand, the perspective that Paul seems to have is that every situation is an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. What he wants these readers to know is that every situation, every opportunity, even when I'm in chains, it's an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel, for the gospel to go forth. It just depends on how you're going to look at it. Paul's perspective is not, woe is me, I can't do this. Paul's perspective is, this is just a different way. This is just another opportunity for me to go and share the gospel. We can think about people like Joseph in the Old Testament. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph. The most beloved of his brothers, right? The favorite son. Given the coat of many colors, the precious coat, right? Ultimately, his brothers turn against him. He's sold into slavery, travels to Egypt to be a slave, and he's betrayed by his friends in prison. But then ultimately, we find, as we read the story, that Joseph is pretty much the second command in Egypt. He goes from being a slave, from being really considered dead, to now being the second in charge in all of Egypt. And his brothers come and they find themselves falling at his feet in the royal court, though they don't know it's their dead brother. There's a famine in the land and they're looking for food and Egypt has, has food. So they come there and they find themselves at the feet of Joseph. And eventually, through some other circumstances, Joseph finally tells them, hey, I'm your brother. It's me. And they're like, no, our brother's dead. And he's like, no, it's me. And then they have this moment together where they're reunited and they see that Joseph is filled with joy and they wonder how in the world can Joseph respond to them in love and grace and mercy and joy? Joseph, how can you respond this way? And Joseph says to them, well, you meant for evil, God has meant for good. 
What's Joseph saying? God can redeem any situation. Any situation that seems bleak, it seems overwhelming, it seems like the gospel cannot go forward, it does not seem like something that is good, God can take those things and he can redeem them for his glory. Paul, Paul is not arguing, he is not exclaiming, I'm so joyful for my chains. Paul, Paul is not rejoicing that he's in prison. Paul is not rejoicing that people are slandering him. Paul is rejoicing that because he's in prison, and even though people are slandering him, the gospel is going forward, and for that I can rejoice. This situation is an, advance, is an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. We can think about Jesus. At the end of his life, he's just had his last supper with his followers. He goes out to the garden, and he finds himself falling before Jesus, or falling before the Father, Praying desperately. What does he pray? God, I'm in this difficult situation, this circumstance. If you could take it away from me, that would be really great. But what's most important is your will. And Jesus understands that, yes, this is a difficult situation. He's not saying, I want to be in this situation. He's saying, but this is the reality of the situation. And God, what I'm caring about most, what is most important to me, is that you be glorified. Your will be done. So when we find ourselves in these difficult situations, it's not necessarily wrong for us to pray that God would deliver us from them, but we also, and probably with more vigor, should say, God, if you don't deliver me from this difficulty, if you don't deliver me from this seemingly difficult situation, what I care about most is that I walk through this situation in such a way that people would see you, that people would see Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ would get the glory, the advancement of the gospel. God, if you're not going to take it away from me, then help me walk through it in such a way that people would see Jesus. Paul understands and wants the church and wants the readers to know that every opportunity is an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. And partnering with that, he wants them to understand that his current situation is ultimately not about Paul. Paul doesn't care whether, he's not trying to communicate to them, you know, whether he's sick or he's having trouble with food. He wants them to know That his joy is found in the advancement of the gospel. It's not about Paul. I don't care if people are making me look bad, if they're talking bad about me, and if my name is not moving forward. It's not about my name. It's not about my glory. It's not about my fame. It's about the name of Jesus Christ. And so what? So they may have some poor motives. So they have some problems in their heart. What's most important is if they're still proclaiming Jesus and the truth that Jesus Christ is the one and the only one who can save people from their sins, then that's what's most important. See, there are people out there that are preaching to us in this world a false gospel that says what God cares about most is your fame and your glory. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to have riches and he He wants you to be famous and he wants you to have the American dream and live it up. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ and that is not the gospel that is taught to us in the scriptures. The gospel that is taught to us is that no matter what, whether it's difficult or whether it's easy, what is most important is that Jesus Christ be glorified. Whether I am rich or whether I am poor, what is most important is that Jesus Christ, the advancement of the gospel, that is what is most important. 
Maybe we can think about people like Job. I just want to read you. If you haven't read Job in a while, you need to go back and read Job. So it will help us see. See, I think sometimes this is the part in the sermon where maybe some of you, particularly maybe if you're still trying to figure out this thing about Jesus, but maybe even for all of us, and this question that kind of we universal wrestle with is, why why would such a bad thing happen to Paul, such a good person? Why, Why do bad things happen to good people? And I think this situation doesn't fully address that, but it certainly helps us understand it a little bit better. First of all, there's no such thing as good people. But more importantly than that, what Paul wants them to see is it's not about me. It's it's not about whether bad things are... why Why do bad things happen to good people? Because in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of difficulty, that's when the glory and the the gospel of Jesus Christ can shine the brightest. You think about Job. Wasn't that the argument for Job? When the enemy comes to God and he's like, yeah, of course they'll follow you. Of course Job loves you. Look at all this garden. Look how incredible it is. Look at his family. Look at his riches. Look how great it is. Yeah, it's easy to follow you when things are like that. And God says, he... Job loves me. I know Job loves me. You, you just watch. And so he lets the enemy do all of these things, right? He attacks Job and his family and destroys everything that Job has. And there's this whole deal in Job where they're trying to figure out what is happening. And his people, uh, his friends come to him like, Job, what's wrong with you? What have you done? And like Job's like, nothing. I, I, I've done nothing and sit, yet I will still look to God. And then we get to the end. And they find themselves kind of wrestling with this question. And, and the Lord answers them. This is the very end of verse, in chapter 38. The Lord answers Job from a whirlwind and he says, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. I like that. God's like, all right, get ready. You just come on, big boy. And he says, when I question you, you will inform me. I'm going to question you as God, and you tell me what you think. You tell me if you have these answers. And he says, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And then over and over and over, God's going to ask Job all of these questions that Job cannot answer. Only the God of the universe can answer. And so he continues on asking him all of these questions. And then ultimately, Job finally gets two chapters later, all of these questions later, Job finally gets a chance to answer God. And Job says, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. And then God continues and he answers Job and he says again, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? What is God trying to communicate to Job Hey, listen, I'm God. I'm in control of all things, and I've got this. Who are you to question me? Who are you to look at your situation and think, woe is me? 
What you should do is look at your situation and see, how can I glorify God in the midst of this difficulty? How can God be glorified? How can God be honored in this difficulty? Ultimately, Job finally again replies to the Lord and he says, I know that you can do anything and no plans of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about the things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and I repent in dust and ashes. What Job understands is that he is not God, but there is a God who is completely sovereign over all things. I think part of that situation, part of that question, why do bad things happen to good people, we push it a little further. Tim, does God cause all of these bad things then? Like, is God causing all this? And I'm not sure I can answer the depth of that question. But what I can say with certainty is that I don't know if God causes them, if he allows them, whatever semantic word you want to put in there. But I know that there is a God who can take any situation and he can redeem it for his glory. He can take any difficulty, he can take any circumstance that you're dealing with and he can use it to point people to the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. When we decide that Jesus Christ is in control and that everything in our lives, it's not about me, it's not about my ease, it's not about my fame. So we have this this trouble in our lives, particularly as Americans, that things ought to be easy. We go to Burger King, right? We want it our way right away, right? That's what we want. We want easy. We want simple, easy lives. We want the two-story house with the two cars and all the healthy kids, and we want to live in peace and harmony for the rest of our lives, and the reality is that's not what happens. Life is filled with tragedy. Life is filled with difficulty. Life is filled with all of these circumstances where we would look at them and we'd say, how can the gospel move forward when we see that God is the ultimate authority? We see that every situation is an opportunity for the gospel to go forward. And ultimately, my life is not about me. It's about the glory of God. Then we see through the perspective, we see everything in life through the lens of the gospel. And it now helps us to respond in these moments with clarity. To respond in these moments that God would get the glory. Let me just give you another quick example of just just personally how this might play out. I know everyone in this room is not married, but just hang with me. I think you'll understand. When you're married, and you get in, before you're married, when you get engaged, life is incredible, right? I've never done in a premarital counseling where I sat down with the premarital counsel, with the couple, and I said, hey, man, you guys love each other. Are you ready to get married? Do you think things are going to be awesome? Oh, yeah, man, things are going to be awesome. We love each other so much. There's nothing, nothing is ever going to go wrong in our relationship. We really love each other, and we really care about each other. And the rest of our lives, we're going to live together, and it's going to be glorious and harmonious, and everything is going to be beautiful, right? We're going we're to pick daisies and roses every day, and he's going to tuck me into bed, and I'm going to cook him breakfast every morning. It's just going to be this glorious moment together. And then you get married, Right, and it's just a beautiful day for the most part, usually. And then you go on your honeymoon, and it's it's awesome. And then you live together, (laughs) and you see each other's weaknesses, and you see the struggles. And then you live together, maybe for several years, and you find yourself five or six or seven years down the road, and maybe things aren't exactly like you thought they would be, and. 
something comes up in your marriage and you look at this and you're like, I'm not so sure what's happening here. And difficulties will arise in marriages. It's going to happen. Disagreements, sin, something is going to happen that will cause these two people who really love each other and they will look at each other and see, I'm not sure how this thing can move forward. I know God wants us to live together and I know our union, us coming together as a couple is supposed to be for the glory of God and for people to see us that they might see how much Jesus Christ loved the church but I'm not so sure how our marriage can move forward and continue to display the glory of God. See, in those moments, you have a decision to make. You have a decision that says, no, we're going to take this difficulty and we're going to walk through this in such a way that when people look at us from the outside, they would say, that seems incredible that they could walk through this with their eyes on Jesus Christ, that he might get the glory. So what's going to come out of that is the deepening of the gospel in your own marriage. Instead of giving up or throwing in the towel, and I'm not saying that if, if you've been divorced or that there's never, that's never a right decision. I'm just saying when these opportunities come up with us, maybe if we had the perspective that says, this is a great opportunity for the gospel advance, for people to see the love and the forgiveness and the grace and mercy that can be found in Jesus Christ, I will extend it to you and you will extend it to me and people will see the glorious nature of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but our love together maybe will grow deeper. Maybe our love for Jesus and the gospel will root down deeper into our marriage. And we will be stronger because of this. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be difficult. It will not be easy. But we will get to the end and God will be glorified and God will be honored in our marriage and we will be stronger because of it. Maybe you have a difficulty at work and you want to quit and you want to give in. And maybe that's okay, but maybe God wants you to be there in the middle of it. Maybe God wants you to respond with grace and kindness and mercy so that people can see Jesus. Every situation is an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. If we will just see that this life is not about me, it's not about my own comfort. It's not about my own name or my own fame. So what if people look at me and and they don't really understand what's going on? I know my life in every situation, good and bad, is for the glory of Jesus Christ. These situations will happen in our lives. I mean, I don't have to tell most of you. It's not new to you. Some of you are living in them right now and you have the decision to make right now. Will you believe that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things? Will you believe that he can take a seemingly impossible situation and he can use it for his glory? Will you see your situation as a spiritual illusion? What looks like it would be there to hinder the gospel that you would actually say, God, I want to walk this out for your name, for your sake, for your glory. God, would you use me in the midst of this that people would see you, that people would give their life to you, that the people would know about who Jesus Christ is. There's one other passage in Habakkuk that I'm longing and praying and hoping will be the theme of my heart when these difficult situations happen. And I'm hoping that they will kind of sum up the theme and the heartbeat for all of us when these difficult circumstances come up for us. Will they be a road to joy? We look at the difficulties in life and see 
This is an opportunity for joy. The end of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. God is my strength, he makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountains of heights. Though everything around me seemingly seems like difficulty, nothing is going right, this situation doesn't seem like it could be anything but terrible, yet God, I will rejoice in you. You will be my strength. No plans of yours can be thwarted. And we know that ultimately your plan is that Jesus Christ be lifted high, that you would draw all men to him, that people would see in the middle of this difficulty, in the middle of this trouble, that we could point to Jesus Christ and they would see there is a road to joy even in the middle of difficulty. His name is Jesus Christ. He will be our strength. He will be our hope. And he will be the ultimate prize and possession. 